Well, good morning. So uh, this morning, as Chris said earlier, we are starting a new series. It's a seven-part series through the signs of Christ in the Gospel of John. Uh, Today, we are going to look at Jesus's first sign, which is in John 2, verses 1 to 11, uh, the verses that Dwight just read. Uh, But before we do that, uh, I want us to consider three questions together uh, by way of introduction. So question one, what is a sign in John's gospel? Well, to help us here, uh, think for a minute about books and movies. Um, I I won't give, uh, I don't have a specific example, but just generally speaking, if you're watching a tense movie, especially if it's tense and maybe a little bit scary, and a character hears thunder and looks up to see this dark, ominous, foreboding sky filled with rain clouds, what might that signify? Tense, scary movie, someone looks up and sees ominous clouds. Well, it could mean that it's about to rain, uh, but it could communicate, probably does, more than that. It could signify that something bad or scary is getting ready to happen. Or how about if you're reading a book and something great happens to a character, and then the next time you read about them in the book, say they're wearing a like a bright yellow shirt. Now, that yellow shirt may just be the shirt that they choose to wear or that the author gives them in the book, but it might have a deeper significance than that. Instead of just being a piece of clothing, it could signify the internal happiness and joy of the person in view. Well, the signs of Christ and John work kind of like that. They aren't meant to be ends in and of themselves. Instead, each one of the signs communicates something deeper about who Jesus is and what he will accomplish. John indicates this in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, when he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in other words, just as an ominous sky in a tense movie can mean more than rain, Jesus' signs are about more than the works themselves, as amazing as they are. They communicate that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and John wants us, everyone who reads his account, to believe that. Um, One author, uh, Andreas Kostenberger, points this out, and he gives this definition of a sign in John. Here's how he defines it. A sign is a symbol-laden, but not necessarily miraculous, more on that in a second, public work of Jesus selected and explicitly identified as such by John for the reason that it displays God's glory in Jesus, who is thus shown to be God's true representative. So the signs are symbols. They point to a deeper reality about who Jesus is. Well, that brings us to question two. What are the signs of Christ in John? So we're going to cover seven signs in this series, um, but it's important to point out just up front that six signs are the amount that are 
widely agreed upon uh, in the gospel. All six of the ones that have pretty wide agreement are miraculous. So in John 2, 1 to 11, our passage today, Jesus turns water into wine. In John 4, 43 to 54, Jesus heals an official son without even uh, being with the, the child he heals. In John 5, 1 to 18, Jesus heals a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. In John 6, 1 to 15, Jesus feeds a multitude of people, including 5,000 men, uh, with just five barley loaves and two fish. In John 9, Jesus heals a man who had been blind from birth. And in John 11, Jesus brings Lazarus to life after he had been dead for four days. So these are miraculous, amazing uh, uh, things that Jesus does here. Uh, and so these are six signs uh, in the Gospel of John. Now, there's not consensus on a seventh. Options for a seventh include Jesus' walking on water. It's in chapter 6. Uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, that could be a sign. Uh, and, and there are others. It's also possible, actually, that there's not a seventh sign at all in John's gospel. In this series, uh, we're going to go with Jesus's cleansing of the temple in John 2, 13 to 15 uh, as the seventh, or I'm sorry, it's John 2, 13 to 25 as the seventh sign. Now, that's not miraculous, but if you consider what constitutes a sign in the Old Testament, it doesn't necessarily need to be. Uh, for example, in Ezekiel 4, 1 to 3, God tells this to Ezekiel. He says, And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Here, Ezekiel's actions are not miraculous, but they do serve as a sign to Israel to communicate something beyond itself. What's happening there, it's not just, you know, Ezekiel constructing this thing God tells him to do just as a means in and of itself. There's a point behind it. God is sending a message it's possible that Jesus' cleansing of the temple in John 2 is similar to that. Although it's not miraculous, it is a work Jesus performs in public that identifies him as the Messiah, the Son of God, and there's even mention of a sign in that passage. Um, so that said, we're going to include the temple cleansing in this series, um, but um, whether or not it's actually meant to be a sign is uncertain. Just want to be upfront about that. All right, third question. Why should I care about this? Like, why should I care about these signs? Well, the signs John records are meant to lead us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And ultimately, these signs culminate in Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Without that, without Jesus dying on the cross to pay for the sins of his people, and without him rising from the dead in victory, the signs are really stripped of their meaning. Anthony Selvaggio, he has a helpful short book on the signs that I would recommend to you. Looks like this. I actually have two additional copies of these. If anybody wants one, first come, first serve, see me after the service. But uh, Anthony Salvaggio, it's called The Seven Signs, Seeing the Glory of Christ in the Gospel of John. So you can read that book on your own. Uh, it's short. It's a quick read. Uh, you could read that with a friend who doesn't know Jesus. Um, it is evangelistic in nature. There are even discussion questions at the end of each chapter. You could read that with your community group. Uh, I think there are a number of purposes that it could serve. But near the end of that book, he says this, The seven signs of John's gospel are like seven fingers that point to the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is central to John's argument because it demonstrates the Father's full acceptance of the Son's work of redemption. The resurrection is God's validating stamp upon the efficacy of the gospel. The resurrection reveals that Christ has fully accomplished our redemption from sin, Satan, death, and the wrath of God. The resurrection rests like a glorious crown upon the head of the ascended King Jesus. Good news. So, why should we care about the signs? Well, they're meant to lead us to saving faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who died on the cross for sinners and rose victoriously from the dead in order that we might be forgiven, cleansed, and brought to a right relationship with God. This is of eternal significance. And so, if you're not a Christian, that's my prayer for you in this series that you would read Jesus' signs and with the eyes of faith believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. I want that for you. And if you are a Christian, my prayer for you and me is, is actually similar to that. I pray that all of us, that we see Jesus' glory with the eyes of faith in deeper and fresher ways that we grow thrilled and overjoyed by who he is and what he's done and what he will do for us. And, and I pray that this excitement uh, uh, over who Jesus is and what he has done overflows in uh, praise and evangelism. Hope it leads to us being more eager witnesses for Jesus with the people we know. As John says in chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. May that be so for each one of us in deeper and deeper ways as we go through these seven signs. All right, so that does it by way of introduction. Uh, now let's look at the first sign in John 2, 1 to 11. This is Jesus turning water into wine. Uh, we're going to work through the passage in two points. Uh, the wedding, we'll look at verses 1 to 5, and then the sign, we'll look at verses 6 to 11. So first, the wedding. The passage starts out in verse 1, says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Uh, so this is two days after Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel to be his, his disciples in chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. So the calling of Philip and Nathaniel there is, that would be day one, there would be a day in between, day two, and the wedding at Cana would be day three. And John tells us that Jesus' mother 
Mary was there. And he says in verse 2 that Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, which at this point likely includes Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, and another disciple, uh, maybe even John himself, uh, the author of the gospel. I'm drawing that from the list of disciples uh, in um, the portion of the gospel prior to chapter 2, 1 to 11. Now, given that Mary was at the wedding and that Jesus was invited with his disciples, it's possible that one of their relatives or uh, close friends is getting married. But at any rate, uh, what's important to point out here is um, that weddings at this time period were really significant events. So a couple of things uh, to, to notice. So first, weddings at this time could last for up to a week. Some of you might think that sounds like an absolute nightmare, a week-long wedding. Uh, some of you, if you love weddings, uh, you know, that would be great. I think that would be awesome. Um, but they could last for up to a week. Second, at these weddings, hospitality was really, really important. And the responsibility to make sure that guests were taken care of ultimately fell to the bridegroom. It was his responsibility. Uh, some commentators even point out that running out of provisions at a wedding would not just have been shameful, it's a shame culture, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't only have been shameful, but the bridegroom actually could have been sued for his failure to adequately provide for his guests. Like, the stakes are high. Weddings are already stressful enough, right? But the stakes are high here. Hospitality is important. Now, that said, look at verse 3. John says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. That's a problem. That's a big problem for the bridegroom. And it seems like Mary goes to Jesus to ask him to do something about it. Now, Jesus' response might sound a bit surprising. Maybe you caught this as Dwight read it earlier, or maybe this has occurred to you if you've read this portion of John's gospel before. But Jesus says in verse 4, Woman? Maybe I shouldn't say it like that. <laughs> he says in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So kids, students in the room, if your mom says something to you and you respond by calling her woman, heads up, might not go well for you. Fair warning. But all joking aside, what is going on here? It sounds at first like Jesus is being a little bit smart aleck. That's why I corrected myself the way I said woman a second ago. It sounds at first like he might be being a little bit smart aleck, but there's two things that we need to know. One, that's not what he's doing. He's not sinning against his mom here and calling her woman. At this time, woman actually meant something similar to what ma'am means today in our culture. And what may be more helpful, Jesus actually calls Mary woman again in John's gospel. He says it in chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. There, as he's on the cross, being crucified, he sees Mary and the disciple he loved, and he says to Mary, Woman, behold your son. And he says to the disciple, Behold your mother. He's clearly not being sinful there. 
Now, the final moments before his death, in those moments, he's making sure that his mom's taken care of. He's not sinning against her by calling her a woman. But two, he does seem to be correcting her here. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus' hour in the Gospel of John uh, refers to his crucifixion. Here are a few places where it's mentioned. So in John chapter 7, verse 30, the text tells us, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 12, verse 27, it says, now is, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. It's Jesus speaking. In chapter 13, verse 1, John tells us, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then in chapter 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So seeing the significance of hour in this gospel, I think that helps shed light on what's happening in this exchange with Jesus and Mary. Mary comes to Jesus for help with an immediate need for wine at this wedding. Jesus responds by putting the focus on the work he came to accomplish on his crucifixion in place of everyone who would trust in him for salvation and the glory that was connected to that. D.A. Carson explains this so helpfully, I think. This is a longer quote, but um, yeah, I I think this is so helpful. I I hope that it is for you too. Here's how he unpacks what's happening here. We must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming. His only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary. She had borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as the family provider. Uh, That's the case, especially if uh, Joseph, Mary's husband, had died by this point. But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare presume to approach him on an inside track. For no one could this lesson have been more difficult than for Jesus' mother. Perhaps that was part of the sword that would pierce her soul. For this, we should honor her the more. Indeed, 
And to Mary's credit, uh, it seems like she receives this word from Jesus well. In verse 5, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Again, listen to D.A. Carson's take on this. In short, in 2-3, that's chapter 2, verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In 2-5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. She still does not know what he would do, but she has committed the matter to him and trusts him. These two verses, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, as difficult as they are, help to shape this account of Jesus' first miracle and ensure that the focus is on Jesus' glory, not Mary's, and on the disciples' faith, we'll get to that later, including Mary's. So there's a word here for all of us, I think. No one has the right to approach Jesus on an exclusive inside track. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. We all must come to him as our Messiah, as our Savior, as our King, as our Lord. And thankfully, he's made a way for us to do that. Uh, remember, the signs are pointing somewhere. And, and here, because of Jesus' sinless life, his sacrificial death, his crucifixion, and his triumphant resurrection, we can come to Jesus and we can receive the free gift of eternal life, salvation, forgiveness, and peace with God that he offers. So if you're not a Christian, trust him today. Turn away from your sins. Let go of all your efforts to save yourself and turn to Jesus in faith. Ask him to save you, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to bring you into a right relationship with God. He will. He is ready, he is willing, and he is able to save you this morning if you will come to him. So come. And if you are a Christian, if you're already trusting and following Jesus, keep going. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Delight in him. Draw near to him. Tell other people about him. He is our great Savior, King, and Messiah. And this passage in John 2 has so much to say about that. And there's a lot more that we uh, can still say as we work through the passage. So let's keep doing that. Uh, let's look to our second point, the sign. This is verses 6 to 11. So John says in verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. The Jewish people followed certain regulations and customs in order to be clean before God. So here at this wedding, there are stone water jars there, John tells us, for the Jewish rites of purification. Um, that water was possibly intended for the guests to wash their hands and feet uh, when they got to the wedding. It could have also been there um, uh, for cleaning specific uh, utensils at the wedding. And in verse 7, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they fill them to the brim. Now, keep in mind that there are six of these stone water jars, and each one holds 20 to 30 gallons of water. So now they're filled to the brim. So we're looking at 
somewhere around 120 to 180 gallons of water. It's a lot of water. Now Jesus says to the servants in verse 8, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they do so. Now, it's possible here that the servants just draw the water from the stone water jars. Some commentators point out, though, and this was new to me, um, but they point out that the word for draw is often connected to drawing water from a well. If that's how it's used here, it could be the case that after the servants fill up the stone water jars to the brim, they draw water from a well. We'll come back to that in a moment. But at any rate, they take the water to the master of the feast as Jesus commanded them to do. Now read what happens with me in verses 9 and 10. It says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus miraculously turned the water, either drawn from those stone water jars or from the well, he turned it to wine. But it wasn't just any wine. It was superior to the wine that had been served up to that point. The comment of the master of the feast to the bridegroom reflects that. Normally, the best wine would have served first, and then after everybody had drunk freely, well, then you move to the poorer stuff. But it happens in the opposite direction at this wedding. Unbeknownst to the bridegroom, the good wine is served last. So what's going on here? Well, remember that the signs of Christ and John are never ends in and of themselves. So we could read John 2, 1 to 11, say, that's amazing, and walk away. But we're meant to see more than that. The signs signify something deeper about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So we need to keep pressing in. They're meant to lead us to faith in him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. So I think that we can say at least three things um, about what, these, what this sign may signify. So first, the sign highlights Jesus' power over creation. John tells us about Jesus' involvement in creation in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. There he says, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus created everything. Everything was made through him. That includes water, and that includes the vine and the grapes used to make wine. He, God the Son, created it all. He sustains it all. And here in John 2, he exercises his power over it as only God can do. In the words of Augustine, he who made the wine at this wedding does the same thing every year in the vines. As the water which the servants put into the water pots was turned into wine by the Lord, so that which the clouds pour down is turned into wine by the same 
Lord. This miracle is amazing, for sure. But what should really grab our attention is what it says about the person performing it. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. He has power over creation as its creator and sustainer. And second, this sign possibly here is signifying the arrival of the new, better covenant in place of the old. I say possibly because John doesn't explicitly tell us that, but his mention of the stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification could indicate it. So under the old covenant, God's people needed to follow certain laws in order to be clean before him. And apparently by Jesus' day, they had unfortunately added additional customs and traditions on top of that. So Mark mentions this in Mark 7, 1 to 4. He says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. What could be happening in John 2 is Jesus performing this sign to signify the close of the old covenant, symbolized by these jars, and the arrival of the new. If the water he turned to wine came from the jars, listen to Anthony Salvaggio, that's the guy who wrote this book, listen to his explanation. So this is, if the water turned to wine came from those jars. He says this, with this sign, Jesus was declaring that he was the Messiah and has come to establish a new order. The pots once used for the ceremonial washing of the Jews have been transformed into vessels of fruitfulness and joy. They are now filled to the brim with the wine of the dawning messianic age. Unlike old, unlike, uh, old Covenant Judaism, which has run out of wine, the ministry of Jesus is brimming over with an abundance of wine. The old is gone, and the new has come. Now, on the other hand, if the water Jesus turned to wine came from a well, remember that's, the, that's a, a, another alternative here. If it came from a well, so the, the stone water jars are filled to the brim, and then Jesus says, now draw some water. If he's, if he's pointing their attention somewhere else to a well, D.A. Carson explains the possible meaning. Up to this time, the servants had drawn water to fill the vessels used for ceremonial washing. Now, they are to draw for the feast that symbolizes the messianic banquet. Filling jars with such large capacity to the brim then indicates that the time for ceremonial purification is completely fulfilled. The new order, symbolized by the wine, could not be drawn, drawn from jars so intimately connected with mere ceremonial purification. So, in other words, the, the stone water jars are filled to the brim, signifying the uh, fulfillment of that age. And new water turned into wine is drawn from a new source, signifying that the new has come. Now, either way, I'm not sure who is right there, but either way, 
regardless of the source of the water, if the new covenant is in view, don't miss the meaning. The old covenant was temporary. It was good, but it was insufficient. It lacked the power to fully deal with sin and make sinners righteous before God. It couldn't accomplish that. The new covenant that Jesus offered in, though, that Jesus ushered in, though, has no such inadequacy. So Jesus's once-for-all death on the cross for sinners as a perfect sacrificial lamb, sinners are now made fully, completely righteous by God's grace through faith in Jesus apart from works of the law. Jesus came to do what the law never could accomplish. He came and fulfilled the law. He brought in a new, better covenant. And for us, that is incredibly good news. He has done great things for us. And the presence of the sufficient wine of Jesus, the superior wine of Jesus in John 2, indicates that. And that brings us to our third point about the sign here. So third, the sign signifies the arrival, in part, of the Messianic age, and ultimately, it points to the Messianic banquet, Jesus' wedding, where he is the host and bridegroom, and we, his people, are the bride. So, I know that's a lot. I'll say that again. (laughs) The sign signifies the arrival, in part, of the Messianic age, and it ultimately points to the Messianic banquet, Jesus' wedding, where he's the host and bridegroom, and we, his people, are the bride. Isaiah 25, 6-9 looks forward to that Messianic age. It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That messianic age has arrived in part. Jesus' sign points us in that direction. In a sense, the wine is already flowing. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, died on the cross and rose from the dead, ushering in a new covenant and dealing a death blow to sin, death, and Satan. But the day Isaiah describes, it's not here yet, right? Death is still an enemy, and tears, as we all know, are very much still present. But rest assured, their days are numbered. The most magnificent wedding this universe has ever seen is coming. Jesus looks ahead to that in Revelation 19, 6 to 7, and verse 9. He says, or John, I'm sorry, John looks ahead to that. He says, 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then in verse 9, he continues, And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Jesus is that Lamb, that bridegroom, the bridegroom who is far superior to the bridegroom in John 2. And we, the church, are that bride. So if you, again, if you aren't trusting in Jesus this morning, If you haven't turned from your sins and turned to him in faith as your Savior and King, let me encourage you to do so. Follow in the footsteps of the disciples in verse 11. It's the last verse in our passage this morning. John says this, The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. With eyes of faith, see Jesus' glory on display in this sign. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who died for the sins of everyone who would trust him. And through faith in him, you can have the eternal life, the forgiveness, the peace with God that he offers. If you'd like to talk more about that, come get me after the service. I would love to uh, talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Now, if you're here and you are trusting in Jesus, know that one certain day in the future, you and all the other saints will be part of this marriage supper with Jesus. We are the bride. He is our bridegroom who lavishly provides for us. He has already done so through his death and resurrection. He continues to do, th- to do so through his intercession for us, and he will do so in the future at this wedding feast that's coming. But until that time, on a daily basis, keep beholding his glory. Keep turning from your sins and trusting him alone as your Savior. Keep praising him. Keep telling other people about him and keep waiting expectantly on his return. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, before Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says this to his disciples. This is Luke 22, verses 14 to 18. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You might wonder, well, why did I read that? We're we're partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. How fitting is that? And when we partake of the Lord's Supper... We embrace by faith Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf, his body given for us, his blood poured out for us through the bread, through the cup. 
But when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we can also look forward to that day when we will eat and drink with Jesus. We will be with him. We will see him. We will sit at table with him. He is our bridegroom. We will eat with him in his kingdom together. So it is so fitting that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning as we're looking at John 2, 1 to 11. We're celebrating what Jesus has done, and we are celebrating, looking forward to what is to come. So in a moment, we will eat of the bread and drink of the cup together in remembrance and celebration. Now, if you are a baptized believer in Jesus, if you are following Christ and trusting him alone for salvation, we welcome you to participate this morning. Let's celebrate together. Let's look forward together uh, to what's to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you're not a Christian, I would ask you to hold off on participating in the Lord's Supper today. Instead, again, come and talk to me after the service is over, and uh, I, I would love to do that. For now, let's pray. We'll take a few moments for reflection, and then we will eat and drink and celebrate together. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are and what you have done for us. Thank you for sending Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Uh, thank you for these signs in the Gospel of John that testify to who he is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that point forward to what he accomplished, his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection uh, for our salvation. Lord, we are thankful for what you have done through Christ. Jesus, thank you for being faithful to your mission. Thank you for how you have so lavishly provided for us. We are your bride. You are our bridegroom. Spirit, fill us up with joy and renewed faith uh, in our Savior this morning. I pray that we would trust him, that we would over and over and over come to him with repentant faith. I pray that we would delight in him, that we would keep on beholding him with the eyes of faith, that we would be eager to praise him and tell other people about him. May it be so for us, Lord. We, we need you. We need your help. And Lord, for, for anyone who does not know Christ this morning, please let today be the day of salvation uh, for them. May they trust in Christ, uh, the bridegroom who uh, provides for our greatest need, reconciliation to you, forgiveness for sins. So Lord, I pray that that would be so. So Lord, please um, be with us here as we reflect uh, and prepare to partake communion. In Christ's name we pray, amen.